Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week our focus is on the business of sport and I'm joined once again by my co-host Mick O'Keefe, Chief Executive of Teneo Ireland. Mick, you're very welcome back to Inside Business. Thank you, Kieran. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you too. Now, it's been an extremely challenging year for sport in 2020 and we're going to focus on the outlook for 2021 with a little bit of a look back on last year as well. Joining myself and Mick on the show are Sarah Keane, President of the Olympic Federation of Ireland and Chief Executive of Swim Ireland and Alan Milton, Director of Communications uh, with the GEA. We'll be talking to them in a moment. But first, Mick, uh, I know that Teneo has, ha- has some uh, interesting research on sport. Uh, maybe you'll, you'll take us through the key findings. Yeah, Kieran. I, I suppose look, looking ahead to twenty twenty one, I think um, it's fair to say that we've already seen massive disruption and, and the postponement or, and, and cancellation of a lot of competitions. We've seen women's Six Nations and under twenties been pushed out. We've seen golf tournaments cancelled, uh, and, and and a lot of the sport that was pushed from twenty 2020 twenty into twenty one been been questioned. Um, with respect to to ourselves, I suppose looking ahead to to twenty twenty one. Uh, we surveyed um, over 30 of the, the top sponsorship uh, people in, in Ireland, which would account for over 50% of the um, of, of, of the sponsorship budget and, and sponsorship market. Um, a lot of them would have experienced uh, difficulties last year and would have renegotiated with their with with their um, with their rights holder. Um, and a lot of them would have, would have a, a kind of an interesting outlook ahead for, for, for 2021 as well. But I think what we're seeing is that the byword is, is disruption. Um, what we're hoping for is that you know, um, while Q1 and Q2 will potentially be m- marked by uh, rescheduling and, and this kind of up and down phenomenon of sport coming in and out, that the second half of the year may well see, hopefully, the return of sport. And I suppose we mean by the return of sport is that the major flagship events like the Olympics and Paralympics, like the Ryder Cup, Alliance Tours, etc., take place in some format or other. And that potentially by the end of the year, we will see people back in stadia. And I think that would be a massive success considering where we were looking at this time last year, or sorry, in the middle of last year. Yeah, rugby in the headlines uh, lately, Mick, maybe just uh, get your thoughts on that. Um, some question marks, I suppose, over whether the Six Nations is going to head uh, going to go ahead. I know that they say it will, but we'll wait and see given the restrictions that are currently in place and no sign of them being lifted. And also a question mark over the Lions Tour that you to go to South Africa in the summer. And we've seen in the uh, European Cups, and the remaining group stage matches being cancelled and them going straight to the knockout phase and 
uh, this is obviously having an impact on the provinces here in Pro 14. Yeah, and I think look, rugby is 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 kind of there's a double whammy here of of, of seasonality and and been in in probably the worst of the of, of the of the lockdown scenarios and 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 the, and the third wave, um, and also that a lot of their competitions are cross border and cross geography and. You know, we've seen already the EPC or the old Heineken Cup games have been have been postponed. Um, I think Six Nations made the right decision with respect to the women Six Nations and the under twenties to ensure that both those competitions get played at a later date. Um, the difficulty with the women's game is that some of the teams are amateur and, and the ability to bubble amateur players is, is quite challenging. And with the under twenties, I think giving that a later date as well gives that competition every chance of happening. With respect to the men's Six Nations, it's all stations go at this moment in time. There was conversations with the French government and the, the French Ministry of Sport around uh, teams from the UK and indeed Ireland travelling in and out of France. I think those have dissipated somewhat as the numbers are coming slightly under control. Um, however, I think it's a watching brief. The hope and expectations that the Six Nations does go ahead I think from a Six Nations organisational perspective, being able to get three games played on the course of a weekend and not nine gives a much more laser focus. And I think being able to bubble the international squad players the way they have been will ensure that we will see the Six Nations um, uh, happen this year as as scheduled and hopefully all the games get played um, as planned. With respect to the Lions tour, it's quite a complicated one because... You know, you can't really leave this too late because of travel um, and, and logistics. Um, the major issue with the lines and t- with is, is with their business model in that the lines Inc make all their money from the the sponsorship and and broadcast the host nation budgets that every twelve years a lines touring party comes. And they make an, a massive amount of money, which puts them in good stead for the next number of years around ticketing and, and local hospitality and the inbound um, influx of, of 30 or 40,000 Lions fans. So this is, I think, a commercial decision rather than necessarily a pure health and safety decision that if the if you are going to play games behind closed doors in South Africa, really, from a business perspective, it makes absolutely no sense for the South Africans. The most likely scenario that's been talked about, of which there's three, um, is that the Lions will probably play their games in the UK um, under strict kind of health and safety guidelines. The other option is that the games go ahead at a later date in South Africa. Um, and the last option is that the, the, it gets pushed out a year. Sorry, there is a fourth option, which it doesn't happen at all. Um, the challenges of putting the lines in 2022, just the ramifications and the knock-on effect of all the other scheduling that has to happen. So looking at it from here and there's an announcement due within the next two weeks, I would argue that probably the most sensible uh, and likely outcome will be that as a one-off, South Africa will travel to the Northern Hemisphere and play their tests in, in the UK and Ireland, of which we may well see uh, a warm-up game in, in, in the Aviva Stadium. Yeah, OK. Well, that wouldn't sit well with a lot of people. Willie John McBride, a former Lions captain, uh, not happy with that kind of suggestion. But anyway, we'll see how that plays out. Now, I mentioned a little earlier that we have uh, Sarah Keane, President of the Olympic Federation of Ireland and CEO of Swim Ireland and Alan Milton, Director of Communications with the GEA joining us on a panel to discuss a little bit of last year but also a little bit of uh, what's likely to come down the track in 2021. And I began by asking Sarah Keane whether or not the Tokyo Olympics are likely to go ahead this year given the outbreak, uh, the continued uh, high infection rate of coronavirus across the world. Yes, um, I mean, I think, first of all, the postponement last year was unprecedented. It's the first time in the history of the Games that they were postponed. So it was an absolutely major decision. And uh, I think it was taken, it it took a couple of weeks, but I think it was taken quite timely considering um, the sort of um, machine that is the Olympic Games. Um, I think we're still of the view that they are definitely more likely than not to go ahead. 
Um, there obviously are, uh, you know, people in uh, discussions of some shape or form at the moment on the basis of how rampant the virus is right now across the world. But we're not getting any indications from the IOC that they won't go ahead. In fact, we're actually seeing a lot of action since December, kind of late November, December, January, particularly now around um, discussions with our chef de mission, with our CEO and with other members of staff and the team around how things are going to work in practice. Um, so, for example, you know, there's a lot of talk now around the athlete village. Um, it's going to be a, a bubble. Um, so it's going to be very little restricted, very little access. Access is going to be very much restricted in and out in terms of um you know, the athletes' movements, um, day passes would have been available before, so people could have come in and out of the village. That's not going to be the case this time. So they're now in the detail of how it's going to, how it's going to work. So we, we would definitely still be of the view that the Olympic Games will go ahead. We think it'll be very much a different Games, very much streamlined. Um, the IOC recommended, and we've already adopted the policy, that athletes will depart from the Games within 48 hours of competition. So for us, that is a big departure in terms of the athlete experience, um, because one of the things the OFI wanted to focus on was obviously in uh, trying to provide the best possible opportunity and environment for athletes to perform at their best. But we also wanted to ensure that athletes, teams, families, everybody had a positive experience. And I think for us, that's probably a bit more challenging now in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the, the more social side. So, you know, we had a hospitality house planned for families and athletes to meet up together um, we want to make sure people at a home because, you know, Tokyo, um, not an awful lot of people um, speak the language. So from a point of view of people going around, it's not as easy to to find your way around. So we wanted a place where people could congregate um, and celebrate results and, and meet each other and that kind of social side. Obviously, we wanted to, you know, the usual situation where athletes can go when they're finished competing and watch other athletes compete and cheer on their teammates and kind of experience the wider village um, experience, uh, you know, uh, that just wider piece of meeting other um, athletes socially from other nations and just kind of the that part of it all, which that's the piece now that I think is affected really. Sarah, will the Irish athletes be vaccinated in advance going to Tokyo and will all of the athletes who are competing at the Olympics have had the vaccine by the time they go over there? Well, the IOC are not requiring that to be the case. Um, so there is there there's no mandatory vaccination required. Um, so the IOC won't be providing vaccines in that regard. Um, we they're they're highly recommending that athletes um, and the teams come vaccinated, and so are we. We've done a survey of our athletes, and um, I think we're at the moment there's a there's a very high. Uh, I think it's around ninety percent of our athletes are saying if the vaccine's available to them, they'll take it. So that that gives us a strong uh, indication of the of you know the willingness of athletes and the team to take the the vaccine. But at the moment, it's the athletes who've been surveyed. Um, look, we are hopeful that the vaccination will be available to Irish athletes before and the team before they travel. But that's not really a discussion we're in at this point in time. It's only obviously early stage rollout. And, um, you know, obviously there's priority groups that need to be focused on. And it obviously suggests that 90% say they're, they're willing to take it or would like to take it. 10% are non-committal or uh, aren't interested in it, which is interesting, isn't it? One in 10? Well, I think out of the group that we uh, that were surveyed, there was quite a, a good few who indicated they're not sure out of the, the remain, remainder. So I think there's further discussions to be had around that. But as I said, we're not having major discussions around that at the moment because the vaccine isn't available to, to, to the team at the moment. And that's not something we're advocating for right now. We, we believe the government need to get on with doing it with their with the priority groups at this point. So that's something that will be further under consideration in the coming months. Sarah, can you, can you give us a, an, an indication of, of how disruptive it's been for athletes with respect to timing their performances, training camps, competition, pre-games? Um, can you maybe give us an indication, even from a swimming perspective, how people are preparing for, for, for Tokyo? 
I think it's been incredibly uh, disruptive. Um, I think for, for you know, almost a year ago now, um, athletes thought they were within touching distance of the games. In fact, some people were in the middle of their qualification process. If you take the boxers, they were actually at the qualification tournament um, when the thing was called off. Um, I think some of the boxers were a day or two away from fighting to qualify. So from that perspective, it's, it's been incredibly um, disruptive. Um, however, I mean, one of the reasons we advocate for sport, and I think a lot of us are passionate about sport, is because of the characteristics you develop from being involved in sport, the resilience you build, the the you know the ability to adapt, the ability to deal with adversity and whatever's in front of you, the the uh, the ability to you know remain focused on your goals. So, like we've been very we've seen that from Irish athletes, Olympic athletes, but just Irish athletes across the country, full stop, in relation to how they've adapted. So I think from that perspective, whilst it's been very disruptive, once people uh, understood that the games were postponed, then they then they worked with their within their teams and within their governing bodies and and with us as the OFI um, to you know to uh, to adapt and evolve as much as possible. I think the biggest challenge uh, was at the beginning when I, when Irish athletes were out of the pool, out of the you know out of their general environment. Um, obviously, depending on your sport, um, during the first lockdown, they were out for God, I think it's ten or. 12, 16 weeks even maybe at the start. I think that was incredibly difficult for athletes. Having said that, um, most of them would have adapted quite well, same as the swimmers did. They had weight, weights and you know other gym equipment at home. The coaching team adapted. So for, for us with swimming, what happened was, let's say the guys trained 20 or 30 hours a week. They still were in some form of a training program for that 20 or 30 hours. They just divided it up differently so they weren't in the water at all. So it, uh, I think for, for the swimmers, it was quite challenging because they're, they're, um, you know, you can't really simulate swimming on land, but at the same time, people adapted. And actually, we had some swimmers do um, best performances late last year when they got an opportunity to compete, as in Irish records and the best they've ever performed. These are potential Olympians, despite the fact that they were out of the water for that period of time. So I think a lot of Irish Olympic athletes um, have adapted in that way to their training programs and kept themselves focused on what's happening. I think the challenge now is, um, is the fact that the qualification opportunities are still unclear. What exactly is the qualification pathway for athletes? Um, because at the moment that that's still evolving and the, it's happening um, for some, but it's still unclear for others. So, you know, the qualification pathway has been laid out. Um, it's obviously reduced pathway, but at the same time, some things have have been postponed backwards again and again. So I think a lot of the qualification opportunities will take place over a very um, condensed period of time which will suit some athletes, but it won't suit other athletes. So this games could be a very open games in terms of, you know, uh, whether athletes will be in a position to perform or not, depending on, uh, I think it'd be quite individual. It could be depending on their age, could be depending on their level of performance, um, their experience, because there'd be some athletes who wouldn't have the same opportunity to gain competition exposure either. But I think, I suppose to, com- to complete that, I, I, I think we should be very proud of our, of our Irish athletes and our, our potential Olympians and our those who will go to the games and generally I think the resilience they've shown and also a lot of them have looked to be part of the wider social movement in terms of supporting younger athletes and supporting society in terms of being involved in various initiatives and also as I said in terms of supporting younger athletes you know all the the Irish Olympians got involved in programs and zooms and other things they could do to support others so look that's a good thing you know uh, one of our mottos is um, person first and athlete second so I think that's something that we've all had to perhaps maybe uh, we've had demonstrated to us that we're living a bit more in the last year, which I think is a good thing. Your sponsors and partners and, and government um, agencies and so forth, how did you deal with those um, in the last year and how, how do you think sport has dealt with with those other stakeholders, particularly on the commercial side and, and, and the impact that may have had? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's probably different across sports. Um, so uh, if I just take, I suppose, from Ireland and then the Olympic Federation. Um, so with the Olympic Federation, we knew within a short period of time that the Olympic Games was postponed. So our major activation event, so to speak, and for the, for the partners wasn't going to happen in 2020. So a lot of those plans were there for, from the start, we're in discussion about rolling those over into 2021. We've been superbly uh, supported by the partners, FBD, Circle K, Indeed, um, and, and others. So from that perspective, um, they have still managed to activate in some shape or form, but the activation plans are really now ramping up. I mean, we're announcing, I think, later today, FBD are, have... Um, have looked at putting another fund of money together to support athletes who are not carded, you know, not on the programme, but who might be just below it, but who might still be kind of shot, have a shot at qualifying. Um, so that that funding announcement will take place later today. Um, Circle K, um, look, they're the ones who obviously have 400 nationals, uh, you know, the, the, the stations around the country, the petrol stations around the country. And um, they're looking now to do more as we come at, uh, over the next couple of months and indeed do a lot of work to support athletes um, in terms of their career pathways. So that has taken place behind the scenes when Good. when we weren't. Uh, yeah. When, so uh, we've been incredibly well supported by our partners. Absolutely. Fantastically supported. Um, I suppose the other side of from, from us is that, you know, our main funder is the International Olympic Committee, not the government. And uh, the International Olympic Committee uh, works on a four year cycle. So we've already negotiated our funding cycle from 2021 to 2024. Um, and, and that's been a good outcome for us. And um, so that, that has really helped us already keep planning for Paris. Because what most people are forgetting is we're actually already into the Paris cycle. We're, we're almost a year into the Paris cycle. Um, and that is probably one of our concerns in terms of, of, of preparations for that, whilst at the same time to, trying to ensure that to Tokyo. And also the Beijing Winter Olympics is taking place six months after the Tokyo Games. Um, and we do have a Winter Olympic team. So there's actually an awful lot happening in the space of a short space of time that we kind of have to keep an eye on. Um, relations for us with the government are very, very good and uh, Sport Ireland. So we've, um, we, you know, we've, we felt that there was a lot of support to get the elite athletes back in their training environment. And um, for us, you know, there's a lot of support towards funding for the Games later this year. But uh, I think between the support of the IOC and the support of our, our, our sponsors and funders, um, I suppose our own financial planning, um, what's happened for us is actually we would have, if for 2020, we'll show a surplus that will now go into 2021, where we'll show a deficit at the end of 2021, because it'd be, you know, this Games will cost uh, over three million, which is a, which is a significant amount of money. This is the highest amount of money that the um, organisation will ever have spent on, on an Olympic Games. Um, so, yeah, so look, it's been challenging, but we've we've been very well supported in that regard. And I suppose maybe just to finish on this one, one of our strategic goals is to try and become more indep financially independent. So it's about trying to put into the system as opposed to take out of the system. So, you know, we would have put, uh, I think we've put over half a million in the last two years to, out to governing bodies uh, in supports. Then we've obviously put other supports through the Institute of Sport and worked with them and, and through athletes and scholarships and all that sort of stuff. So that is something that we will be looking at particularly as well as we go forward in the next couple of years. Is your cash still losing value? If the answer is yes, then talk to Davey now. With cash no longer working as hard as it could, the longer you hold it, the more value you may lose. By talking to one of our trusted advisors now, we can help you find a solution that works better for your financial and investment plans. Let's start the conversation. Call us now or visit davy.ie forward slash cash. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. 
Alamilton, let's talk about the GA. Uh, an interesting year in 2020, obviously. Uh, you managed to get the Inter-County Championships away and I think there were some uh, you know, fascinating results and great fixtures. We were back to the straight knockout in the football, which delivered a couple of uh, great results and some exciting games and so forth. But obviously a tough year financially for the association and tough because... Um, like with the athletes, uh, a lot of your members were, um, they weren't able to compete or they weren't able to train, etc. for uh, many weeks during the year. So just maybe sum up for us, uh, in financial terms, how did the GAA come out of 2020? When you add it all up and add it all down in terms of money lost, but grants from the government and, and so forth, how, what was the outturn at the end of the year? Well, Karen, like everybody else, it was an incredibly challenging year. Our master plan was turned upside down and I know everybody had challenges in society and we were no different. Um, our figures have been audited at the moment and we'd expect, as we've said all along, that we will report uh, a loss in the region of 50 million across uh, national level, county, provincial and our clubs as well. So our funding model has been, as Sarah's alluded to, it's just been an incredibly challenging year. The uncertainty is, is, the, is the crippling factor and there's no real let up for 2021 because it's really, really difficult to plan for the, for the months ahead. So We've frozen all our investments in the clubs and, and that's a really big decision for us to take uh, because, as anyone would know, we reinvest 84% of what comes in, goes straight back out. Uh, but when you're not taking money in, it's really, really difficult. So it's asked questions of the GEA at every level in a way that we could never imagined. And I think lots of our club officers and our county officers deserve great commendation for the flexibility and the innovation they've shown around things like streaming uh, and, and things we thought we would never have to grapple with so soon. Uh, and we made this season work and I think there was a there was a great air of, of satisfaction in getting the championships played. They weren't without their challenges as, as the Sligo footballers will testify. But to get them played in the depths of winter the way we did, I think it shortened the winter for people and it gave people a focus. And that would bear, be borne out by the figures, the viewer figures that we had and indeed the streaming figures early in the year for the club activity. And, you know, I, I know it's a bit of a cliche and people's eyes glaze over when they hear about it being a fluid situation, but it, that's exactly what it was. Our first three scenarios last year for a return to play were based on May, June and July. Like Little did we know how far off the mark that would be, but I think everybody was trying to operate on the balls of their feet, to be nimble, to be flexible and to adapt to the situation as it unfolded. <coughs> and to get the club scene back was really, really heartening because while people who don't support the GA might think our inter-county window is the be-all and end-all, and it is a driver of the organisation, the pulses were set racing by the return to activity in our club units right across the island and the simple thing of having kids being able to train in the evenings, perhaps in pods of 15 in non-contact sport, that just brought life back into communities where it was badly needed and that was a real takeaway for me, Kieran. So what about the outlook for this year? Because obviously we have this third wave now or, you know, we're in a, a lockdown situation, the schools are closed and, and so on. It's... You know, it's desperately disappointing, let's let's be honest about it. And for a lot of people in terms of mental health and so on, it's very difficult to, to deal with. So you've had to push back uh, in terms of your inter-county training season. So I'm just wondering what the knock-on effect is. We've no clear signal as to when, you know, the economy is going to be opened up again. It could be, it could even be for some sectors, it could be after Easter. So what's the likely impact for the GEA and, and how are you sort of moving to a plan B? Well, the next 10 days will reveal a lot because I think lots of organisations are, are waiting to see what the government's next step is going to be. Uh, I think it's obvious at this stage that we're going to have a problem starting our leagues at the end of February, the Alliance Leagues, as was hoped. So if that pushes back into March because we have to be cognizant of player welfare, you can't return players to the inter-county frame 
without having had proper time to, to gear up. And while they're training away on their own individually, it's simply not the same. So if that two or three weeks, and I'd imagine that's realistic time frame, that has a knock-on effect right through, which would probably see the All-Irelands move from July into August. And the, the eventual knock-on effect is then that your club, All-Ireland club semi-finals and finals may have to move into 2022. But I would say the cooperation we got off every strata of the organisation in 2020 um, it was really heartening and it was really encouraging. We're going to have to rely on it again. People are going to have to show the similar levels of flexibility. And I always say, Kieran, that you know all of this is sport and it's a pastime. And of course, there's a business element to it too, but there's bigger things happening in society at the moment. And I think that needs to be brought into the conversation to provide context and to provide backdrop for people. But we, we have to be cognizant of the battles that people are having in their personal lives and indeed the state and the government are having in trying to roll out a vaccine and to try to get the figures down which I sincerely hope will continue to come down in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Alan, um, I suppose last year as well saw necessity being the mother of invention with respect to things like live streaming, um, different mix of kind of media and so on, trying to, you know, with so much going on in such a short space of time. Um, are we going to see, do you think, a, a kind of a, an evolution of the media rights from a GA perspective and, and potentially more streaming centrally of, of games and a kind of maybe a pay-as-you-go type model um, and even longer term, something like a GA TV type scenario or is it, where, where would you see that going in, in, in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think it's back to the analogy, Mick, of, uh, of never wasting a good crisis. And um, we were on the cusp of, of setting up our own studio in Croke Park. So that would have allowed us to deal in-house more uh, with the advances that we have made with, with GA Now, which was our own uh, video and clip service. Uh, we've done a lot of our own shows and we have big plans to, to push this on. I think they will happen, but I don't think they'll happen on the time frame that we had hoped. In the area of streaming, the genie is most certainly out of the bottle. I think the innovation that our clubs and county showed was incredible. Uh, it was twofold in terms of the benefits it brought. It allowed people to connect with the games that couldn't go because either they couldn't go for personal reasons or they weren't allowed to go because... We had to play games behind closed doors. It also helped um, It helped f address some of the losses of, at gate receipts as well. So I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to see streaming, but there are a number of knock-on factors that we have to consider. I think we need to look for, for standardisation and for consistency in how we present our games. Uh, and I think for the best part, that worked out really, really well. And I also think we need to address, and this will be the year to do it because our media rights are up for renegotiation, that while we have guaranteed exclusive rights for certain games, we have also in the past tried to provide exclusivity for that window in which the game was being played, which meant, in essence, if one of the broadcasters was broadcasting a club final, we couldn't stream, or a county couldn't stream a club final against that. The cooperation of TG Cahar and RTE and others last year meant that stipulation did not apply and I don't know if it's realistic to expect it to apply going forward in future negotiations. So as someone who's in the comms space, Mick, it's a really exciting time for the GA and others, of course. But I think the fact that we've seen a glimpse of the success of GA go abroad with the diaspora is now being replicated on the island of Ireland and in, 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 closer to Ireland. Um, I think there's real potential and real promise here um, and while there are challenges with resources and finance in the, in the immediate short term, I think we'll work our way through that and, and get creative to, to fully embrace the potential that this uh, presents. Um, Alan, on, on the the subject of, of ladies football and, and camogie, and we've seen the women's GPA merge with the, the GPA, we've seen the ILGU merge with the GUI, 
Um, and you know Sarah, who's on the call, obviously you know involved in in the promotion of of women's sport from a, a government task force perspective. Um, where is the the GA at with respect to trying to bring those membership organisations together? Maybe not necessarily all under a roof, but a, a greater integration between the the, the codes. Um, and and just to get your sense of that, and and maybe to overcome some of the the potential issues that arise, not necessarily by by design, but sometimes just by accident that come about when there is a certain amount of disconnect potentially between some of the some of the organisations. I think the big learning for us there last year, Mick, was and we were very disappointed that a couple of negative incidents uh, had the potential to overshadow the excellent working relationship we have with the LGFA and Cumann Camogiacta. Um, we had very successful meetings with them last week and we're trying to chart a way forward. There is a memorandum of understanding in place already. Um, and the one club model, which I'm familiar with in my own club, works really, really well. And I think there's an appetite for the three organisations to move towards something like that. However, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that those two organisations have their own identities. Camogie's been with us since 1905 and ladies football, if I'm not mistaken, is around since 1972. So this has to be done at a pace and over the course of a process that those two organisations are comfortable with. They have their own identity, they have their own culture and their own constitution. They are their own organisations and perhaps some people don't realise that. They, they're not in, we, we don't govern their games and their games, there are certain rule changes. Now, if you walk down O'Connell Street in the morning and ask 100 people, I'd imagine 95 of them would tell you they're part of the Gaelic Games family and they absolutely are. Uh, but I think, I think what happened in 2020, Mick, will focus minds in that it, it, the more we can work together and the closer we can align ourselves, like uh, avoiding duplication in administration and various other areas where we can share expertise. Like, for example, our cool camps are run across all three. Our officer training is run across all three. So there's lots of positive stuff happening. But I think some of the commentary around what happened was was inaccurate and it was ill-informed. It wasn't helpful. But I think there's an onus on the three organisations to double down and to see can we address some of the accurate commentary that did accompany what happened and to see if we can get to a place where those incidents do not happen because there are ways of, of addressing what happened because it's it's an absolute must. And and Sarah, just 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 turning to you on that and not, not necessarily that specific point, but around women in sport and 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 you know, I think everybody would accept there's been momentum and and, and positive change over the last number of years. But do you feel, as some people have argued, that potentially 2020 was a, a kind of a minor setback? Um, and that momentum needs to be reinvigorated into that into that women in sport movement. And, and where do you see women in sport um, in, in in general at the moment in, in in this country? I suppose for me, I'm I'm lucky and privileged in that I'm seeing things from an international perspective as well as a national perspective. So I think I add a different dimension because I'm involved at uh, European Olympic Committee and World Olympic Committee level in terms of. Uh, gender equality. I've also just been appointed to an EU expert gender equality working group. So. Um, and then I'm on the Sport Ireland steering group. Uh, so for me, um, I think a lot of progress has been made, but I, I wouldn't be satisfied, particularly in some ways as to where we are. The levels in terms of officiating and coaching uh, in terms of females are still incredibly low. Uh, if I give the Olympic Games for an example, where we will have almost 50% gender equality in terms of participation at this Tokyo Games for the first time ever. Um, the Over the last 10 years, we've had only 11% uh, approximately of the of the teams, Olympic teams across all of the nations, 206 nations competing, uh, 11% have been females in terms of coaching and 11% approximately again, or maybe it's 12% have been in terms of officiating. 
So that shows across all Olympic sport and non-Olympic sport that, that those levels are, are still way below the levels in terms of participation and also in terms of, I suppose, the leadership, the governance side. Um, I, th I, I think that 2020 has moved us back in terms of particularly part participation um, and particularly where women's games are amateur and the male side of it is professional. Um, I think that you can you're seeing a marked difference in terms of some some tournaments are going ahead where it's a it's the professional game and if it's the amateur game they're not in terms of and and generally that means the men's game goes ahead and the women's game doesn't so I definitely think that's that's been a real challenge and and has been a setback to to, to the to the women's games where they're trying to move forward I think in terms of the uh, leadership side I don't think that's gone backwards in fact I think it's accelerating forwards. Um, in terms of I think we're, we're doing better than numbers I, I'm not content where the numbers are at so Sport Ireland have now started um, publishing uh, what what's the situation is in terms of the boards of all the governing bodies of sport uh, we still have too many boards with under 10% of, 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 equal, of, of women generally I mean I'm obviously you know we have boards as well where there's lots of lots of females and not men so for me that's not acceptable either Um so I, I think we've seen progress in this area, but I, I, I'm of the view that at this stage we should be calling out um, the organisations where, where those numbers are, are where they're at in terms of, you know, we, there was a discussion a couple of years ago with, with, with ministers and um, where, where there was a suggestion around quotas and it was firmly put back in its box, but it was done on the basis that people would set targets and we would see progress. And I think we've seen progress, but I don't think we've seen the level of progress we would have hoped or expected to see. Um, the governance code under which all the governing body bodies have to be compliant with by the end of this year talks about diversity generally in relation to your board. It doesn't necessarily spe specify gender. Um, so that would be a concern of mine in terms of um, what, what Alan is saying there about the GA and other organisations. And again, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't presume to be totally informed or anything like that. But I can say that what I've seen across all the organisations where um the male and the, the, the both genders of the sport are run by one organization with um, then that's where you see much more equality um, in terms of, of participation uh, in terms of everything. Um, and I and, you know, almost all other governing bodies have been asked to combine. So, for example, water polo 10 years ago was a separate organization to Swim Ireland um, and they ran water polo as a separ uh, separately to us. They had their own identity. They had their own culture. Um, and it took us several years to do that integration piece. But our view is that has been better for the sport and also better for the female side of the, uh, side of it. Though for us in in our sport, men and women train and compete and all that kind of stuff uh, a lot more together. Um, I think huge progress has been made across the codes and and other areas. But I I do think that that that's something that has proven where it's all part of one organisation. You do tend to get more progress more quickly. Sarah, finally, can I just ask you uh, in terms of the Olympics? Let's hope they go ahead this year in Tokyo, the Summer Games. And um, what are Ireland's or who are Ireland's uh, best medal hopes this year? I suppose what I'll say about that is that this for this Games, we probably have uh, more people across a wider grouping of sports than ever before who might potentially medal. I'm definitely not going to medal pe name people on the basis of where, where the, the year that we've just had. But we have, we, no, because I'm going to leave somebody out if I name them, but we have six or seven sports where we have real medal potential, which is more, I think, than we've ever had before. And I think... In the past, we haven't set medal targets. Well, for, for starters, there's several of us involved in this across the governing bodies, Sport Ireland, the OFI. You know, we need a, a full Team Ireland partnership in order to really then look at medal targets. The new high-performance strategy, which the OFI have fed into as well, which hasn't actually been publicly announced or launched yet, but will be done in due course by the ministers, is a 10-year strategy that we fed into. We will then start to announce clear medal targets. 
um, as a result of that. So there are medal targets for 2024 and 2028 within that. So it's the first time that we've decided to do that. When we did our uh, strategic plan and we did our consultation around that two years ago in 2018 with athletes and with coaches and with the wider, you know, all our governing bodies, all our members, etc. Um, people didn't want to set medal targets at that point. Uh, there was just a feeling that it, 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 I suppose you can't control medals either. You can only control your own performance. Um, so that was a concern. But there has been a decision since then. There has been a kind of a shift that those targets are going to be set. I mean, generally, uh, the highest I think we had was uh, was in, in London. Uh, I think that was around six medals. Um, I think the, the targets that's been set is probably somewhere between three and five at this point for this. But as I said, we have we, we have a, we have you know, we could have 12 real potential medal opportunities. But a lot of that's going to fall out now into qualification opportunities as well, because some individuals, if they qualify, they have a good opportunity to medal. But, you know, you could have some potential um, medal opportunities who may not qualify depending on their own event and their own sports. Um, and also depending for some people, you know, who, uh, we have well, some maybe, maybe some younger athletes now who may be in a position to, to qualify and who may come up as well. So, look, I think this is going to be very open games. Um, so I think that's going to be I think that's actually going to be very exciting. Um, but hopefully we'll just we'll get there and we'll, we'll see. We we'll just our job is to make sure we give the best possible opportunity for our athletes to perform and make sure that we are on the journey with them, not just um, uh, we have been on the journey with them, but to continue that and keep them as informed as, as possible and support them as best. And obviously just, I would like to recognise the leadership of the performance directors and the national governing bodies and the chef de mission and others, because they're always behind the scenes, you know, it's kind of athletes who are out there more more prominently. And um, I think the leadership they've shown in, in the last year has really allowed the athletes then to to still kind of look to the performances that they hope for as we go forward over the next couple of months. Okay, you you mentioned six or seven sports where potentially we we might medal. Boxing, I suppose, is an obvious one. Rowing, uh, athletics. Where else might we look for medals? Golf, taekwondo, gymnastics, equestrian. Absolutely, there are some that are that are everything would have to go right for. Well, look for all of them. Everything would have to go right for in some ways, but there are some that obviously are closer to to medal opportunities than others. But you you, you genuinely have. A group of sports in a way you've never had before. Like that's what's exciting as well, because I think then that there's just a kind of a this general feeling across the team um, that that a lot of people could do incredibly well, and and obviously supported by others who will also hopefully perform to their best. We need to, we need to get Camogie into the into the into the Olympics. We'll pick up a few medals. Well, an interesting one, which uh, I, I remember having the conversation, and you might recall the RT Sports Awards last year. Um, Stephen Kenny referenced that uh, like we've never had a, a, a football team in the games. <gasps> And like he, his view was that was something might be something that we could consider. We'd certainly like to consider that. We've been trying to obviously qualify the rugby sevens teams. So you know, there's there's sport has Olympic sport has moved forward, and I think we've another exciting ten years ahead of us now with this new strategy. And part of it is bringing new sports into the fold, um, with a view to getting them to the event. And then obviously uh, the the other part of it is getting getting our Ireland to to actually achieve at the, at the at the highest medal standard. But we also have a Winter Olympics, which is different and exciting as well. Now, Alan, as a Dublin fan, I'm delighted to say that Dublin won um, its sixth uh, senior football title in a row. Uh, lots of Kerry people predicting that uh, it could go as high as 10 in a row. Let's hope so. But uh, a lot of people also want to see the, you know, the dominance of Dublin ended and lots of suggestions emerged uh, over the course of the inter-county season just gone as to how that might happen. Kevin McStay suggesting that uh, maybe the, uh, Crook Park would parachute in a, a CEO type person or a commercial officer uh, into each.
each county to help them out in, ter- in terms of financially. Uh, it's been suggested, I think he also suggests that Dublin should play all of their games outside Crook Park. Um, and it has also been suggested that maybe Dublin should be split into, uh, you know, into two or, or maybe more pieces um, to try and uh, address that situation. And um, what's your own view on this? What's the GAA view on this? Is there the potential for Dublin to um, be split or for its commercial power, if you like, to be diluted in some way? It's a really interesting question, Kieran. In the immediate short term, I'd have to say no. I think I think there's an oversimplification in linking uh, the funding and the the sponsorship or the commercial power of Dublin and the success of the Dublin senior football team. I think if, if that particular analysis held true, the hurlers would also be far stronger than they are. The minors and the under-21s would be too. Uh, but I do think there has been a useful conversation around the funding model for coaching in Dublin and and there's no doubt that the, the GA took a decision two decades ago that they wanted to have a big market share in the capital city and that has come to fruition. Ironically, it's still no way near where it could be and that's probably the most frightening statistic. But um, I'm of the opinion that if we what we need to do is bring the other counties and units up to Dublin's level or try and that process has started so between 2016 and 2019 there were 60 extra GA coaches coaching roles created nationally none of them were in Dublin and the obvious beneficiaries were the wider uh, province of Leinster and Belfast Stroke Antrim and they were the two areas where there was a push put on um, I think it'd be very very dangerous to try and dismantle and I hate to use the term brand when we're talking about amateur athletes but the brand of Dublin is a really really potent and powerful one and uh, the idea that you would replace it with something that I can't get my head around at the moment in, in the short term anyway would be risky situation no more than the Kilkenny footballers or the Kerry uh, Kilkenny hurlers and the Kerry footballers I think you would go there at your peril to be honest in the short term and I do believe Kieran, that this phase of Dublin football will pass through the system. I think what you're looking at is a freakishly talented group of players who were coached by a freakishly talented uh, trio of managers, beginning with Pat Gilroy, who changed the culture absolutely, utterly in Dublin compared to where it was. So there's no short-term silver bullet here, but I don't think that this uh, conundrum is going to go away. And I think how it will be addressed best is from the counties through Central Council and management saying... We need to do more to spread the expertise that Dublin have accumulated uh, and bring it on the road and share it with other counties. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not overly simplistic by saying that you're going to copy and paste that solution and counties like Leitrim or Carlow or whatever it might be, they're just not in that bracket. There are tears and that's why I'd welcome the commencement of the, the, the Talchin Cup this year. The idea that we've five tiers in hurling and one in football Beggar's belief for me, and I think, I think the introduction of a second phase will be a welcome addition on so many levels because there's a realistic opportunity for success for lots of football mad counties, including big days out in Croke Park, which currently does not exist for them. So, look, it's a very complex situation that you could probably devote a, a podcast to on its own, uh, but they're just my they're just my musings on it, uh, and I, I think it's a conversation that will continue to run uh, definitely for the next number of months, if not years. All right, Sarah Keane and Alan Milton, thank you for joining us.
Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Mick O'Keefe, Sarah Keane, and Alan Milton. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Declan Conlon produced the show with Dan O'Neill of Teneo on research. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.